I mean, are you just tripping over candidates and reporters following candidates through Iowa? You know, these presidential events are not just taking place at at big event centers or or places like that. I mean, they're taking place at local diners and and pizza restaurants. And so, yeah, sometimes you're just taking your family out to dinner and you're going to stumble into a presidential campaign event. Those things uh, certainly happen. And you have this this surge of of in-bed reporters that, you know, they they get sent out to go uh, live in the state that they're going to cover and report on and, and follow their candidate or candidates around the state. Um, So it really is, you know, especially in those small town communities and depending on, you know, kind of the the overall political demographics of the part of state that you live in will dictate, um, you know, kind of where, which candidates you see, what their strategies are. um, And and you start to learn a lot just by where candidates are going and, and the folks that they're hanging around. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Hey, thanks for being with us for another episode of American Potential. Thanks for staying with us throughout all of the uh, all of the content that we're bringing. We're approaching a hundred episodes. It's hard to believe that we're we, we've almost done a hundred episodes. Of this podcast, so thanks for being with us. Look, as the uh, as the leaves start to change for some parts of the country, Americans are thinking about another change: who will be the best presidential candidate? Now, the first state that gets to let their voice be heard as to who they think would be the best for the job is Iowa. This midwestern state, known for its friendly communities, becomes the epicenter of political activity every four years. And for people who work in politics, journalism, or public policy, living in Iowa during a presidential primary or caucus offers them a unique perspective into the political process. It's a time when the nation's attention is focused on Iowa. So what's it like to live in Iowa during a presidential caucus? Does it become a distraction or do the people of Iowa enjoy getting the opportunity to ask presidential candidates questions face-to-face and voice concerns that they have. On today's show, we have Drew Klein, who is Iowa State Director for Americans for Prosperity, to talk about what it's like to live and work in Iowa during caucus time. Drew, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. So, Drew, first of all, I, 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 you have, you're the top guest. I think you've been on this, this program almost more than anyone else. Um, I mean, what, it, it, you're, you're a regular fixture here. So thanks for being with us again. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's a lot going on in Iowa. It's, uh, it's a great place to be. Yeah. So we talked, we've talked with, uh, Greg Moore about New Hampshire and the primary and, I, I asked him to explain the difference between a primary and a caucus, and he did. But in the interest of equal time, <laughs> I'll let you give the difference as well. Uh, for people that are living in a primary state or don't understand what a caucus is, explain that process and what it's like. Yeah, I mean, the biggest difference it, you know, right out of the bat is that a primary is is a function of the state. It, it's still an election process. The, the caucuses, on the other hand, 
are really a process of the political parties themselves. And so the secretary of state, the state itself is not really involved in, you know, tabulating votes or, or doing any of that. This is a function of both the, the Republican and the Democrat parties. They host these at the precinct level um, and they are intended to be a, a party organizing activity. This is how people get, um, you know, put on the, the local county central committee, how the, the, party platforms are written. Um, All of those things are all part of the caucuses. And then, you know, every four years or as the presidential uh, the, the presidential process rolls through, then they also get all of this attention because of the role they play um, in choosing the party's nominee uh, for the presidency as well. But but these have been a big part of, of the Iowa political system for you know, literally hundreds of years. So how did I, I, mean, I was just thinking about this. How did I, I don't know the answer. How did Iowa become the first in the nation caucus and how long have you been doing that? Yeah. So the caucuses have been taking place well, you know, back into the 1800s. I think there was one instance in the early 1900s where we briefly shifted to a primary um, and then immediately went back. And the the reason was that the cost to the state and the taxpayers was so much higher under the primary that we decided, no, we'll just let the parties kind of do their own thing um, and and went back to a caucus. So that was one time. but, But we got our position as the first in the nation caucus status. Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. So the Democrat National Convention in the late 60s decided that they wanted to start scheduling these contests out. And quite frankly, they put Iowa first because our system was so much more complicated that they figured, hey, let's just front load Iowa on the front end of that calendar. And then we can you know, string all of these primaries out after that. So in uh, 1968, I believe, was the first uh, first caucus for a presidential contest for the Democrats. And then four years later in 1972, Republicans joined them as well. Uh, So interesting. And now you jealously guard it, right? I mean, uh, there's always this battle between New Hampshire, which is the first primary state and, and Iowa, which is the the first state and the first caucus state. Um, But you're, I think Iowa voters uh, are very, very uh, jealous in guarding that as, uh, as their, their right to, to stay first. Right. Yeah, there's certainly not a, an absolute consensus, but the parties and, and I think a lot of our voters really appreciate the status that that we're given as first in the nation, quite frankly, just the voice that it gives us in the overall selection process. So um, there, there's a big part of it that is just the, the political weight that comes from the Iowa caucuses. And then, of course, the folks that, um, you know, that, that collect revenue off of it, the, the city of Des Moines or, or you know, just kind of broadly, we, we measure the economic impact as well. We sell a lot of food through our restaurants and book a lot of hotel rooms because of folks have to come uh, hang out in Iowa for, you know, it seems like a year, year and a half now before the Iowa caucuses. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's um, it's almost like having a Super Bowl every four years coming into town and the economic impacts of that, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Our <laughs> restaurant owners certainly feel it, um, the, the hotels, uh, all of those folks. But it but it just ripples across the economy in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. Um, so I, I'm from a caucus state. Colorado is a caucus state. So I've been to my caucus many times. Uh, it, every every two years I go to caucus. I know Iowa is a little more di- is, is a little bit different, a little more complicated. But for those of our listeners who don't live in a caucus state explain what it is you literally 
have to do a lot more to participate in a caucus state. So it's much more activist driven because you literally have to show up at the caucus. Right. Uh, but explain to people what that looks like. If you're if you're going to a caucus, yeah. how you do it. Yeah, well, off the bat, um, you know, maybe one of the most substantial differences is there is no absentee participation in a caucus. You have to be present um, and you have to be present at the exact time that the caucus happens. The caucus doesn't take place over the course of a week or two weeks. It takes place at one point in time. Um, usually it is 7 p.m. on a Monday night. It could be, um, you know, the, the exact timing of it varies, but, you know, the upcoming caucus, it, it will be 7 p.m. Monday night night, January 15th. And, and if you are not there at that time, then you do not participate in the caucuses. Outside of that, there are also just some subtle differences, even between the way that Republicans and Democrats have caucused. Uh, Republicans still have um, a secret ballot process as it relates to the the presidential contest. Um, but we also handle all of this other party business. So you're electing delegates to the to the county convention. You're electing um, and nominating precinct representatives to represent you on the county central committee. You're, you're talking about these platform planks and, and various ideas there. Um, all of that goes into it. On the Democrat side, they, they handle all of that party business. Um, but then there's also this really interesting kind of jockeying for, for delegates um, through the caucus process as well. So the Democrats add an, an extra wrinkle of complexity to their caucuses in setting up kind of this minimum viable threshold. And so candidates that have, you know, that are that are below that threshold um, are essentially told, like, you need to pick your second choice. Um, and then you get this round of of lobbying that takes place and the other campaigns are kind of vying for, for your delegates support. Um, you know, it, it's a great time to, to check out your neighbor's uh, brownies and, and whatever other <laughs> baked goods they've came to entice you with. Uh, but yeah, it, it is a little bit um, complicated. And it's also interesting because depending on where you're at, you know, if you're in one of the more metropolitan areas, the, the suburbs, you know, you're probably in kind of the, the local school gymnasium or the cafeteria. But in rural parts of the state, this could be in the church basement or, quite frankly, it could be in your neighbor's living room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very grassroots thing that I think a lot of people who've never been to a caucus don't understand how grassroots it is. And it's dependent upon turnout, right? So if, if, uh, you know, one candidate's expecting all of their supporters maybe to show up at caucus and two or three or four of them decide, oh, I had a really hard day at work or, you know, I just, my meeting went long or whatever. I'm just not going to go to caucus. I mean, that literally can change the outcome of, of, of the results of the, of the caucus or even the presidential caucus. If, if that happens on a larger scale, correct? It is a huge test for a campaign's organizing strength, their ability to actually get their people to show up. It's not just, did you have a hard day at work? It's, you know, there, there's no rescheduling these for the weather. So January's in Iowa are bitterly cold and the wind howls and, and we don't reschedule for blizzards in, in Iowa. And so, yeah, the, the turnout game becomes huge, but it's also a big measure of not just um, kind of the the breadth or the width of that support, but also the depth, because, you know, when you have all of those excuses to not show up to the caucuses, it's the folks that care most deeply or have the strongest convictions about their candidate that actually follow through and show up on caucus night. I think one other important thing is for people, again, who might not be in a caucus state to understand these are 
these are your neighbors. This isn't like a citywide caucus, right, or a, 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 a gigantic group. I mean, you know many of the people in the room. It's a neighborhood that's caucusing or, or a, a precinct that's caucusing, correct? That's exactly right. So we have hundreds of precincts. The state has broken into these hundreds of, of precincts. But, um, you know, as you're checking people in and I've, I've chaired my caucus, as you're checking people in, these are literally the people who live just down the street from you. Could be your next door neighbor as um, as, as my neighbor is usually at my caucus. Um, it is folks right in the area. And, and you have a small map of your neighborhood and, and you're kind of checking off so that you know, make sure that. Uh, you know, folks have found the right precinct, the right caucus location, all of those things. It is absolutely your neighborhood that shows up to caucus together. So this uh, in the case of Iowa, it'll happen at seven o'clock at night. How long can a caucus last? Yeah, usually on the Republican side, they're they're fairly quick, although um, yeah, some of this is just turnout dependent. So in 2016, which was the high water mark, we had 186,000 people show up across the state to participate in that caucus. Well, at a, at a precinct level, just in my precinct in West Des Moines, Iowa, um, that was a couple of hundred people that all had to, to get checked in and signed in and, and sat down in a school gymnasium. That made things stretch out a little bit longer. So in that case, I think our caucus in 2016 took maybe two hours, um, you know, but again, we do this every two years. So so even just a couple of years later in 2018, 2020, those caucuses take, you know, 30 minutes or, or maybe only an hour uh, where there aren't big presidential contests to, to be sorted through as well. But yeah, yeah it's it's. It's a, can be a long affair. I mean, so you're carving out some real time and uh, you're you're trying to hurry back home so that you can get kids tucked in and ready for school the next day. And it's it's a process. Yeah. Do you remember what was your first caucus? Do you remember that experience? Yeah. So I actually caucused for the first time as a junior delegate when I was in high school before I turned 18. So mm-hmm. uh, we uh, we train our young to, to caucus as well. We let them show up and we actually have kind of a separate caucus. We send uh, folks before the age of 18 off to, to form their own platform and talk about their own ideas. We um, we give them the, the straw poll experience as well. And, and it's always kind of fun to hear uh, what the youth are coming up with and, and the ideas, the things that they're concerned about and are top of mind and, and even who they like from a from a presidential candidate perspective. So you you have all of that taking place, at, you know, at a very young age as well. Um, and then the other thing that's that's kind of unique as well is as long as uh, a voter is going to be 18 by Election Day of 2024, they're allowed to participate as a full delegate in our caucus process as well. So I believe I caucused for the first time in 2004 when I was still in high school. Um, I believe is is my earliest caucus, uh, but it, it becomes a lifelong experience. Did you just want to do that or were your parents, did your parents caucus? I mean, has it been kind of politics runs in the family or not? No, not at all. Actually, I got sucked in. In fact, this is very true for the caucuses. I got sucked in through my church. Uh, my church was pretty politically active. Uh, my parents themselves were not politically active. Uh, but that actually becomes a big part of the caucus as well. You you caucus kind of as a community, not just as a neighborhood. Maybe it's as a civics group or as a church or, or some other kind of social community. Uh, that becomes a big part of what caucus turnout looks like and, and what drives caucus participation participation. Yeah. Well, you know, to people who don't live in New Hampshire or Iowa or South Carolina, but live in Wyoming or Montana or even Texas, I mean, 
this is a foreign thing to them. So I'd love to get a sense from you, uh, particularly as grassroots as a caucus is in Iowa. It must be an incredible experience this this time of, of year, every four years, when you've got all these candidates coming into Iowa. I assume you're running into them sometimes at at the at breakfast or, you know, go out to dinner and you'll run into them or they're having an event somewhere. I mean, are you just tripping over candidates and reporters following candidates through Iowa? Yeah, it's certainly easy to to stumble across those folks. And, uh, you know, these presidential events are not just taking place at at big event centers or or places like that. I mean, they're taking place at local diners and and pizza restaurants. And so, you know, sometimes you're just taking your family out to dinner and you're going to stumble into a presidential campaign event. Those things uh, certainly happen. Um, And, and, you know, same deal. You, You see reporters everywhere. All of the coffee shops are kind of littered with this national press corps that follows these campaigns around and and you have this this surge of of in-bed reporters that you know they they get sent out to go uh, live in the state that they're going to cover and report on and and follow their candidate or candidates around the state um, so it really is, you know, especially in those small town communities and depending on, you know, kind of the the overall political demographics of the part of state that you live in will dictate, um, you know, kind of where which candidates you see, what their strategies are. Um, and, and you start to learn a lot just by where candidates are going and, and the folks that they're hanging around. Yeah, let's talk about the Iowa State Fair. I mean, that's like if you're if you plan on winning in Iowa, you probably have to have a presence at the Iowa State Fair uh, there. In fact, when Nikki Haley was on this show, I asked her what her favorite food was there. I think she said it was like a chicken and waffles, some kind of concoction there uh, with chicken and waffles. But everybody has their favorite state fair food. Love to know what yours is. But also, I mean, is that just a kind of surreal experience, I would imagine? Yeah, and I think it's actually, it works both ways. I think um, the Iowa State Fair is incredible because it brings, you know, Iowans from every corner of the state together for those 11 days. And so if you're a candidate that's still just trying to learn Iowa and, and learn its people, the Iowa State Fair creates a, an incredible opportunity for that. Um, the Iowa State Fair itself may not be the, the most representative of what caucus turnout itself is going to be, um, but you, you just get that incredible opportunity. And Iowans, whether they're going to show up in caucus or not, are still participating in this overall conversation that we have as a state that, that ultimately kind of drives the results of those caucuses. So, uh, you know, th- that becomes really, really important. But I think the more important question you asked was, what's the best food at the Iowa State Fair? <laughs> and undoubtedly, that is a, a grilled pork chop on a stick from the Iowa pork producers tent. Wow. I, I might have to come to that and, and, and do that just for the food. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it is a, it is a real journey. So you're going to want to fast for a week before the state <laughs> fair and for a week afterwards. And then I think it kind of works itself out, but uh, it, <laughs> okay. it's a culinary tour. What's the weirdest food though, that you've ever, that you've ever seen. I mean, there's some weird state fair food. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard to say weird because, you know, different people show up with their different <laughs> preferences. Uh, one of the most uh, maybe outrageous is a, a food called a maple bacon brownie on a stick. This was maybe a couple of years ago. I think they're still there, though. And so you, you take a brownie, um, wrap it in bacon and then dip it in like pancake batter, fry it and then drizzle maple syrup and, and chocolate over the top of that. 
Um, that yeah. is maybe just the most over the top as far as, yeah. you know, just American exceptionalism and, and prosperity. <laughs> I mean, when you just pack that into one dessert, but um, you can fry almost anything at the state fair. And so you just get incredible opportunities. You know, some people aren't big corn dog fans. And so we go pickle dogs. Um, there's an incredible journey and there's something for everybody. I'm not saying I wouldn't try that brownie bacon deal. I mean, that sounds oh, pretty yeah. good. You're going to want to share it. You, you are going to want to share it. It's massive. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Well, that's fine. That sounds good. Okay. So if you, if you were to, not that you're going to move from Iowa, but let's say hypothetically, I know you're not going to, but if you moved to, to a different state, like even a super Tuesday state, you think yeah. you'd, you'd miss the atmosphere of the presidential caucus? Yeah. And we get that, you know, Jeff, even as, as I talk to my colleagues at Americans for Prosperity, that the state of the race feels so much different in Iowa than even to a certain extent what you see in national coverage and, and certainly what my colleagues are feeling in, in other states, um, just because everybody is camped out. And, and even this far out, we're, we're still more than 100 days away from the Iowa caucuses, but it is it really part of every conversation, you know, with anybody that's that's even a little bit semi-political, you just you hear all of this stuff and we start to think about everything, you know, in part through kind of the lens of of this Iowa caucus. What's the impact on all of the other races that are taking place and, you know, all of the the normal state legislative races and the primaries and candidates putting their hands up. It seems like all of that kind of takes uh, a step back as far as the, the level of importance. But you start thinking about, well, what's the impact on our congressional races and our Senate races and uh, which we don't have any in, in 2024, thankfully. But um, everything just kind of gets colored through the lens of, of the Iowa caucuses. Um, and because that's the loudest you know, kind of event that the loudest political current, then it shapes the conversation around the issues and, and the policies. And, and even as the ability to color people's opinion on, on, you know, major, you know, just events, wh- whether they be, you know, local or, or, you know, world news and, and those types of events, everything gets shaded because there's a presidential candidate immediately present to, to provide their perspective and their opinion on those things. Yeah. What what are you hearing from people as kind of their top concerns in Iowa? Yeah, I mean, economy is certainly top of mind for everybody. Um, you know, uh, Iowa has fared maybe better than than a lot of other states as far as our overall economy. Um, but the reality is inflation is inflation. And and at the grocery store or the gas pump, the, the dollar just doesn't go as far. And and we hear that when we're out talking to voters on the door or, or even in those events. Like that, that is a uh, just kind of an ever present um, concern on everybody's mind. But, um, you know, maybe newer in this cycle than what we've seen in the past is the the importance that uh, Iowa caucus voters are placing on border security and, and the issue of immigration, which, you know, again, we, we talk a lot, you know, 10 years ago, maybe we didn't put immigration as high up on the radar. But, um, you know, when you see the problems associated with our with our open border and the, the border crisis right now, those problems are showing up in Iowa, you know, much more readily and, and quicker than they did 10 years ago. And so that becomes a big issue, um, you know, and then kind of outside of the policy world, 
we're having a really robust conversation about how do Iowa caucus voters uh, shape this race and put ourselves in, in the best position kind of moving into the, the general election as well. That becomes a, a top concern for those caucus participants. And so there's a really robust conversation being had around just the questions of electability, too. Yeah. And I, I want to get to that in a second. Do, do the people of Iowa, I assume, feel pressure, kind of a sense of responsibility because they're the first state that gets to voice who they think the best candidate would be. Is that a, is that a sense that Iowans feel? Yeah, I think so. You know, we we recognize that, you know, Iowa doesn't necessarily pick the the eventual nominee in every situation, uh, but we do often whittle the field down substantially. And so we know that by the time, uh, certainly by the time we get to Super Tuesday, there's going to be a smaller field of candidates vying for people's support in large part based on the results of Iowa and, and some of those early, you know, those those other early state contests. And, and so I think there is an incredible amount of um, you know, pride and responsibility uh, among Iowa caucus voters in really, you know, kind of playing that role and playing it and, and setting up the rest of this contest to, to you know, to, to, to move in the direction of where we want to go, both from a values perspective, but also sometimes just on a, a practical, more pragmatic uh, front as well. Yeah. As, as you see that, I mean, clearly that will have to happen, right? In the Republican field, we'll see Folks, we'll see candidates It winnow down to a smaller number of candidates. I think there's already some discussion of people who didn't make those last couple of debates. You know, should they continue? There's going to inevitably be pressure on those uh, to get out. But I think as you go through Iowa and, and certainly even New Hampshire, that there's going to be growing pressure if people don't do well in Iowa, particularly to get out and to narrow the field down a bit. Um, what are you seeing out there as as candidates that are really putting a lot of effort into into winning Iowa which which presidential candidates do you see putting in that that incredible effort to do well in Iowa yeah, there are a number of them still. Uh, in fact, even at the very top of the ticket, Trump is clearly leading in the polls right now. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen his campaign kind of double down on a presence in Iowa, and they've come back to start doing more events, which, you know, it was really feeling like they were kind of bypassing Iowa and, and kind of moving on to more of a, a national election feel. They have started to come back and, and do some more events. But then you also have folks that have just been camped out in Iowa for for a long time. So, uh, you know, Mike Pence isn't really performing well in the in the polls when we when we look at those national polls. But there are a lot of Iowans that have had a chance to meet him in person and shake his hand and ask their questions and, and interact with him. Uh, you know, Governor DeSantis from Florida has been everywhere and is uh, very clear that he is on his way to complete a 99 county tour of Iowa and, and be everywhere. Uh, but but you also see, you know, uh, former ambassador and Governor Haley has been here. Uh, Scott, uh, Senator Scott, Tim Scott has been here. You see uh, Governor Burgum has done a number of events. There's still a large field. Vivek is is all over the place. In fact, in my uh, in my little community, just a, a mile down the road, he's doing an event later this week. 
um, that they're calling uh, Vectoberfest or Vectoberfest. And so you get really creative with the types of events that you do. Uh, but they are they are crisscrossing the state. They are all over there. There's really not, um, you know, obviously the polls talk about the kind of the top two, three, four candidates. We're still seeing six, seven, eight candidates all over the place um, in Iowa. And, and so that'll, you know, that'll continue to, to you know, kind of play out. One of the things that's interesting this year, maybe different from other cycles, is the way that those super PACs have come in and, and really kind of amplified the candidates presence in a lot of places as well. So a number of those candidates, it's not only the candidates themselves that are doing the events, uh, but it's also the, the role that those super PACs are playing in helping to um, either build out those events or even handle some of the canvassing and, and the phone work and, and all of those other essentials that, you know, that have always been a part of the Iowa caucuses. Now you see those being handled sometimes by, by some of these outside groups as well. And surrogates, I think, in a, in a caucus state like Iowa are really important. And particularly in Iowa, there's a lot of surrogates yep. who are choosing their candidate or chose their candidate. And, uh, that, that plays out. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, some of it is is very basic. I mean, again, because these are party functions and very grassroots in nature, uh, a lot of times some of the biggest influences actually uh, exercise or, or kind of, you know, th- that influence is, is wielded by your longtime party activists, the, the folks that have, you know, just been a staple in the Republican Party or or the county party um, in some cases, not even statewide, just at the, the local level. Those become some of the most covered endorsements, but you also see lawmakers weighing in. And so you have state legislators um, that are that are picking candidates and weighing in. And, and those become really trusted sources in their their local community. You know, oftentimes the the higher profile, the statewide elected officials and even you know most times the members of Congress themselves don't weigh in. Um, and that kind of goes back to protecting that first in the nation status um, that they, they don't want to step on the wrong toes. If they if they make the wrong bet, you don't want the eventual nominee to kind of throw Iowa under the bus later. Um, and so they they often uh, keep a little bit lower profile and instead kind of uh, work as Sherpas of the the whole state. And, and you'll see them at a lot of events with a lot of different candidates. Uh, and they're really just trying to welcome people in. But then you also have, you know, conservative media personalities that they help shape the race and, and you know, kind of play that role of surrogates. Um, it becomes a, a big deal. And, and Iowans are not necessarily hanging their support on any one other individual's uh, endorsement. That's not really the point. But you do start to see kind of this consolidation or this trend, this momentum that will build as we get closer to January. And those surrogates and, and those endorsements certainly play a role in that. Yeah. And your governor, your governor, actually, I think, didn't she host some events at the state fair uh, kind of? You know, to, to get yeah, people to understand theories this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, there, there's always kind of been this uh, Des Moines Register soapbox event, and that took place this year as well. Uh, but the this was the first year that the governor herself hosted an entire series of, um, you know, as, as a play on fireside chats, she called them fairside chats, uh, <laughs> but really to, to get all of the candidates in, or as at least as many would say yes, uh, to come sit down and talk about the issues that uh, that she hears from Iowans about every day and, and the things that, um, you know, again, will, will continue to play a big role in determining who will do well in the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. So, uh, 
you know, you, I'm sure you've done this for so many cycles now and you probably have some great experiences. What's the most unique experience that you can think of that you've had either, you know, be, around the Iowa caucus or, or, or around uh, the, the picking of a presidential candidate? Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you, um, we do get spoiled. And so uh, when I was a freshman in college, I was not intending to, you know, to, to work in this industry. I, I, I was politically involved, but, um, you know, I was a I was pursuing a very different degree. I got sucked in uh, in the 2008 caucus cycle because I had a friend uh, from my hometown that worked on a campaign and, and called up uh, to get me involved as a volunteer. And, and just a couple of months later, uh, I was driving a sitting U.S. senator and presidential candidate around the state of Iowa, um, you know, just because that's that's what they're looking for. They're just looking for volunteers to get them from point A to point B. And so um, at age 18, uh, just as a as an Iowan who, um, you know, again, this this wasn't my like chosen career field uh, right. to have that kind of access to to a candidate simply because I showed up and volunteered in some phone banks, you know, a couple months earlier uh, was a pretty cool experience. And and honestly, like that's probably what shifted kind of my career trajectory and, and got me more interested in in the work that, um, you know, even even the work I do now. Yeah. And now you go out and you try and defend liberty, defend freedom, uh, uh, push back sometimes on the excesses of government. Um, and you've, you've done such a great job. We, we were talking about how many times you've been on this show, but Iowa has been highlighted on this show many times because of the great work that you do. Yeah, I think those other guests are, are far better. They, they tell a very compelling story about uh, just what it means, not only to start your own business, but to, to battle and fight to realize your American dream in so many cases. So, uh, yeah, those stories about William Burt or, uh, you know, what it looks like to try to grow a a franchise of of great clips and and you know just provide people with an affordable haircut or or I think of um, you know some of the the small farmers that just wanted the ability to to meet market demand and and uh, sell raw milk you know who, who knew that that was going to be such a big uh, a big thing in Iowa but yeah those are those are just you know a small sampling of the things that. Um, that I see on a on a regular basis on the ground in Iowa. I think the first time I was on the show, I talked about some of the silly regulations and, um, you know, it, you know, told the story about how pipes have to be insulated under a bathroom yeah. and, and have completely altered how your guests will view bathroom sinks for the rest of their <laughs> life. That's right. That's right. Well, Drew, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, you bet. Listen, the Iowa caucus it's this is important work so important we're choosing a leader and it's it's a it's a great uh great responsibility for the people of Iowa and they take it very seriously uh but we also ought to take it very seriously at some point you'll have a voice in that and so it's very important that we all get involved in this and it's great talking to Drew and having him give us you know some of the insight about what goes on in a caucus state look liberty and freedom they're so easily taken for granted. We do it all the time here in America. Don't take liberty and freedom for granted. Go out there, defend freedom, defend liberty. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.